Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The latest from Seven News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome. Tonight, Australia is set to reach a very welcome vaccine milestone in the coming hours. New predictions for New South Wales as cases surge to record highs. The Afghanistan exit, we speak to an Australian on the ground in Kabul and two of our Paralympic superstars join me before they head to Tokyo. But first, in a matter of hours, Australia will reach a major pandemic milestone with over 50% of the population protected against COVID with at least one vaccine dose. Based on our current rate of vaccination, by the 10th of October, 80% of adults will have had one dose. In 98 days, by November 24, 80% should be fully vaccinated and those dates are expected to come forward as Pfizer supplies increase and Moderna arrives. Now, those numbers matter greatly. They'll keep people out of hospital and give some hope to New South Wales, which has seen a huge jump in daily case numbers with 633 recorded. That's an increase of 181. Here's that state's chief health officer. Every person is passing on the virus to more than one person, so we are continuing to see case numbers increase. We haven't seen the worst of it. I can't express enough my level of concern at these rising numbers of cases. All right, our Tom Hartley's live at Sydney St Vincent's Hospital this evening. Tom, good evening to you. Now, first, hospitals, they are under increasing pressure, but there is a plan to redirect resources to help free up some hospital staff. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, Michael. Effectively, uh, the private sector has answered a call for help from the public sector, agreeing in private hospitals to postpone non-elective surgeries for the time being so they can redeploy staff to hospitals in the public sector that are stretched, namely those hospitals that have seen outbreaks within their wards with staff having to isolate. And they'll also be redeployed to help with the vaccine rollout too. So that's some good news there as well. Yeah, that is good news. Now, as we heard the Premier saying there, a record-breaking day, but she is saying there are fears those case numbers could get much worse, Tom. Yeah, it's the frustrating news that we're really sick of hearing, quite frankly, Michael. But what we are hearing is that we haven't even reached our peak. Now, if we compare our outbreak to Victoria's outbreak last year, that locked them down for several months, they reached their peak number of cases, 725 cases entering their ninth week of lockdown. And we're currently at our ninth week, or about to enter our ninth week, I should say, and we're well and truly going to eclipse Victoria's record. Not that that's something to be proud of. We're looking to... Um, hit about 1,000 cases in the next few days, potentially 1,200 by September. Some experts are even throwing around the number 2,000, so it's something that we, we certainly hope isn't the case. Yeah, we do. They are depressing numbers, but despite all of that, Tom, the Premier has been discussing what freedom could look like. What has she said? Yeah, so this was on Breakfast Radio this morning, Michael. She didn't lock anything in as, as ever. It was a, a little bit vague, but something to look forward to potentially in September if the vaccine uh, rates stay up. She's saying that personal care services would go back first. So those are things like uh, hair and beauty salons, so you'll be happy to hear about that much. Participants <laughs> and customers, uh, for instance, that they'll, that pe anyone who goes there and anyone who provides a service, they will have to be vaccinated, though. So we really do need to be hitting those vaccine targets. 
She's saying six million doses need to be in arms by the end of August. Currently, we're at 5.2 million doses, so the race is well and truly on. Heading in the right direction, Tom. All right, Tom Hartley, good on you. Thank you for that in Sydney. Now, freedoms are set to return to millions of people in south-east Queensland as restrictions are eased early. Our reporter Georgie Chumley is live in Brisbane tonight. Georgie, good evening. What are the changes? Good evening, Michael. It is good news here in Queensland. Masks will no longer be compulsory in indoor work settings if you can socially distance. You also won't need to wear one if you're outside unless you're in a crowd, but you will need to carry a mask on you at all times. And there are some other indoor public spaces that you'll need to wear a mask, which include high schools, uh, supermarkets, shopping centres, aged care homes and hospitals, at least for another week. From 4pm on Friday, community sport will also resume. We'll also see 100 guests allowed at weddings and at funerals, 75% capacity for spectators at stadiums and you'll be allowed 30 guests in your home. Georgie, the state's obviously still on high alert over the New South Wales border. Here's the Premier speaking about that earlier. At the moment, there are too many people crossing the border. So that means we want to put even tighter restrictions on our border. It only takes one person crossing the border with Delta and we're into a lockdown. All right, Georgie, how are authorities planning to clamp down on the border crossings? Well, the detail of it isn't exactly clear yet. What we do know is that the number of essential workers that will be travelling from New South Wales to Queensland will be drastically diminished. How that will work is still unclear. Uh, the number of professions that will be allowed over the border and number of people within those professions will be reduced. Uh, a number of extra police were brought onto the border today and there have obviously it's raised more concerns for communities over the border like in the Tweed where they've already been a and say they may be losing ten to hundreds of thousands of dollars over the length of this border shutdown. We're also now bringing in the army for backup. All right, Georgie Chumley in Brisbane, thank you for that. A house fire has exposed a major drug operation in an affluent suburb north of Sydney. When this four-bedroom Castle Hill went up in flames, police discovered every room was dedicated to growing cannabis for sale. Another home went up in smoke down the road, housing a cannabis operation worth millions of dollars every year, police say. Uh, model and author Tara Moss, who's more recently become a disability advocate, is suing her former doctor for medical negligence. The lawsuit centres around a claim she was injured during IVF treatment in 2016 and that a hip tear went undiagnosed. Moss walks with a cane or uses a wheelchair and will potentially require home care in the future. Her lawyer said she was seeking an extremely large claim. And a group of base jumpers have been arrested after leaping from a building in Perth. Their thrill-seeking quickly caught the attention of police who were there to greet them when they landed. Four people have been charged, but police are still looking for a fifth member. Now, let's go to Melbourne. Authorities in Victoria are focusing their attention on 15 mystery cases in the Bayside region, among them a sex worker in St Kilda. Here's the Health Minister earlier today. I stress there is no evidence of transmission having occurred uh, because of this person's sex work occupation but out of caution we are asking that if you have employed a sex worker in the St Kilda area you need to come forward and get tested. Estelle Greepings, our reporter live in Melbourne tonight. Estelle, hello to you. Authorities say the only link between the cases is geographical. 
Well, Michael, there's hardly anything else these 15 mystery cases have in common. We know that they work in a pretty small area between Middle Park and Caulfield North, but that's where the similarities end. We know that among the cases, there's an architect, an accountant, a pizza shop worker, the sex worker from St Kilda, and also some members of the Jewish community. But really, contact tracers believe there still could be a missing link, and they really want to detect that index case to figure out how this has all started. And that is why they are asking people who live in those Bayside suburbs who may have any symptoms at all to go out and get tested so that contact tracers can actually get to the bottom of this. And Estelle, this is extremely concerning. There are very deep concerns about a mental health pandemic. Yes, Michael, it's, it's pretty clear when you look at the effects on people's mental health, particularly when you have a look at the number of calls that have been going through to our helplines. Lifeline in Victoria says it's had a 20% increase in calls since 2019. And the Kids Helpline as well in both Victoria and New South Wales has seen a surge in calls. In Victoria, it's been a 30% increase from the first six months of this year compared to the same time last year. And in New South Wales, it's been 14%. So lots of people reaching out because they are struggling with this time in our lives. And our Chief Health Officer here in Melbourne, Brett Sutton, has said that he acknowledges the harm that this kind of uh, way that we're living at the moment is affecting people's mental health. But he says without the restrictions we're living under now, there could have been potentially hundreds of COVID-related deaths. Not good. All right, Estelle Greepink in Melbourne. Thank you. And if you're struggling with your mental health at this time, please call Lifeline 24 hours a day on 13 11 14. Just 26 people were aboard the first of several Australian rescue flights from Kabul. Among them, Australian citizens, visa holders and one foreign diplomat now safely in Dubai. 130 people are on the evacuation list. Not all made at this time, though it is a start. One interpreter was reportedly shot in the leg on his way to the airport and others were stopped on their way. We need to be very clear who's getting on our planes, who's going to our base and who is going to come and live here in Australia. Journalist Andrew Quilty joins us now from Kabul. Andrew, good evening to you again and we appreciate your time. As we've been reporting today, just 26 people on that Australian Hercules craft. I, I know you're personally trying to get more people out who don't qualify. Tell us about that. Yeah, look, Michael, I, I mean, anyone who's here who is not 100% intent on leaving is doing a lot of work and, and not only people who are here, in fact, but people who are outside the country but have a connection uh, are making Herculean efforts to get uh, friends and colleagues and, and also people they, they don't know um, out of the country, you know, ordinary citizens, uh, friends of mine who are who have secured a 747 to uh, fly in uh, and, and airlift uh, a bunch of people out. Uh, fair to say we could fill those planes um, by, with the amount of people waiting to get out of there if we kept them going in. Go back to those logistics at the airport because I'm trying to get my head around that. Even if you turn up to the airport, what is it like there? I know that you've uh, seen or heard of reports of being shot on their way to the airport or right there. What needs to happen to get the people out safely? What happens when they get to that airport? Um, it, even for these planes, to, these planes to land is difficult under the circumstances and then you've got all the problems with uh, getting people to the airport, then into airport, into the airport, and then onto the planes and out of here. A, a, a large convoy of buses left the French Embassy, for example, last night to get to the airport. They were held up at the entrance to the airport in, you know, among a crowd of thousands of people, all wanting to do the same thing, all wanting to get in that same door. 
And I mean, it's an extremely dangerous situation for, for these people, you know, particularly foreigners who are, who are not viewed in a, in a favourable light here at the moment for obvious reasons. Are people being killed at the airport? Yeah, they are. On, I mean, on both sides of the airport where you've got the American forces and, and British forces trying to secure the inside of the airport. And then on the outside of the airport, you've got the Taliban controlling it. And, you know, then these guys are not trained in crowd control. And there are, you know, maybe 10,000, 20,000 people trying to get in. Yeah. And yeah, it's um, several people have been shot. What do you make, Andrew, of the Taliban's assurances that, to the world that they will forgive their enemies? What's your take on that? There's a lot of apprehension about that from Afghans. I think everyone here is collectively holding their breath. Obviously, people have very good reason uh, not to trust them, given their, given their uh, previous actions. You've been out with your camera on the streets, which can't be easy at the moment. Tell me about that experience. What did you see and what did you experience? On most of the streets of Kabul, uh, away from the airport, it's very calm at the moment, but people uh, have this, um, you know, awaiting in bated breath um, till till the day that they can, they can, um, you know, sit back and and know that it's not just a, a facade. We know that the Taliban's uh, no fan of journalism, no fan of free media. Are you feeling threatened? Um, uh, they, um, my experience thus far, and you know, it only expand, uh, spans about 48 hours, has been, um, you know, uh, relatively good in comparison to, I think, what we all expected. However, they have, you know, the Taliban really hasn't consolidated their control yet. They haven't had time. So uh, there's an expectation that uh, things will tighten up. Do you get any sense of all at all in that country that, I mean, there, there, there was a, a solid armed force and an army there that seemed to have just vanished and vaporised, melted away into society. Do you get any sense that there's any resistance or is this just complete Taliban control without question going forward now? Um, there, is, there is a single province, uh, Panjshir province, just north of Kabul, which was one uh, area that the uh, resistance in the 1990s and 2001 um, maintained a presence and which the Taliban never captured. The Taliban have not captured that area once again, and there are some significant resistance leaders there um, who are talking about forming a resistance. Uh, whether they can manage to retake um, the country you know, or any, any territory um, beyond that single valley of theirs, let alone the country, it's, it's pretty hard to fathom at this mm. point. It's that cliche, but time will tell with this one until we try and get an understanding of exactly what their intentions are, whether it's just to completely consolidate Afghanistan, whether they will want revenge for the past two decades, and you'll be there to see it all. Uh, please stay safe and take care there. Andrew Coulty, thanks for your time. Thanks, Michael. Prime Minister Boris Johnson's told UK Parliament there was no appetite for conflict in Afghanistan without the might of the US. Uh, Europe Bureau Chief Hugh Whitfield's live in London. Hugh, good evening from here. So what happened in the UK Parliament today? Well, Michael, this special session of the House of Commons is continuing right now. The parliamentarians have been recalled from their summer break to discuss the fall of Kabul and 
Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, has been forced to defend the withdrawal of British troops after 20 years in Afghanistan, 150,000 British soldiers serving there, 457 of whom lost their lives. But he said that, uh, that the West could not continue in Afghanistan, a US-led mission without, he said, American logistics, air power and might. In the coming days, he says, he'll convene a virtual session of G7 leaders, but it's unclear exactly what they're going to discuss because Kabul has gone. Afghanistan is now in the hands of the Taliban. Boris Johnson said that we must deal with the world as it is. He said the Taliban will be judged on its actions rather than its word, but he said the world had to face reality that there has been a change of regime in Afghanistan. The events in Afghanistan have uh, unfolded and the collapse has been faster than I think even the, the Taliban themselves predicted. What is not true is to say that the UK government uh, was unprepared or did not foresee this. Now, despite Boris Johnson's words, he's facing uh, uh, some real opposition, not just from the opposition parties in the House of Commons, but also his own MPs, some of whom sit on the backbench and served themselves in Afghanistan. Uh, and there is anger too that the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab was on a beach in Crete as Kabul was falling instead of here in London at the Foreign Office. The former Prime Minister Theresa May said, quote, I find it incomprehensible and worrying that the UK was not able to bring together an alternative alliance to sustain a government in Afghanistan, essentially to fill the vacuum left by the withdrawal of American troops. A former Afghanistan veteran, a Labor MP, Dan Jarvis, said it was a catastrophic failure of international and political leadership, with big questions about not just American intelligence, but how British intelligence failed to see this coming, failed to see the collapse of the Afghan army and what would happen if US-led troops left. And it's pretty clear, too, that NATO has been left wanting in all of this. It is clear that without yeah. the US, the NATO, the NATO alliance is pretty much worthless. Back here, Hugh, Scott Morrison announced plans to take 3,000 Afghans under this year's refugee intake, but he did have a very clear message on that subject. Have a listen. We will only be resettling people through our official humanitarian program going through official channels. We will not be offering a pathway to permanent residency or citizenship. We will not be allowing people to enter Australia illegally, even at this time. Our policy has not changed. All right, Hugh, now you're listening to that from London. How do these humanitarian policies of Australia compare to those of the European countries? Well, look, you'd have to say the numbers that uh, Canberra talks about are pretty aspirational, considering they could only get 26 out on that first flight. European nations are successfully getting hundreds of people out a day. Britain hopes to have seven flights off the ground today. They are hoping to pull out 1,000 people a day, not just... British citizens, uh, but also Afghan visa holders. They are opening a new visa category here in the UK. The hope being that the, that uh, 5,000 Afghans can be resettled here in the UK in the next year. 20,000 over time, of course. There are questions, though, about what happened to those 15,000 who can't get out in the first year. There is a similar line, though, here in terms of not wanting to see a flood of migration across Europe and then across the channel here uh, to the UK, with the Home Secretary saying, 
warning that they will not resettle anyone who arrives by boat from France across the English Channel. Other European countries are doing a lot as well. Germany hoping to settle 10,000 uh, people uh, over the coming months. And countries in the region are playing their part as well. Closer to Afghanistan, Kosovo itself, for a long time a war-torn nation, is right now clearing out university uh, accommodation to house 10,000 Afghans who are being brought there by the US so they can be processed and then taken to the United States. So a lot of work being done uh, around the world to try and get Afghans who want to get out, out. And many more of those Australian flights to go in there too. All right, Hugh Whitfeld from London tonight. Thank you. NBC correspondent Jay Gray is in Washington, D.C. with more. Jay, good evening from Australia. Now, President Biden is under fire for what political opponents and commentators describe as the biggest foreign policy failure since the Iran hostage crisis. Yeah, no, Michael, you're absolutely right. He's returned from Camp David back now at the White House and still hearing a lot of that criticism, some of it even coming from within his own party. What the White House and senior advisors continue to say is that this was a situation that initially was laid out by the administration before the Trump administration as far as a date to pull out of Afghanistan, and that while they studied the situation and prepared for it, no one had any idea that it would escalate as quickly as it did and things would fall apart in about a week's time. Uh, they are also placing a lot of the blame on everything going on right now there on the Afghan military and, and saying that they basically refuse to fight, refuse to defend uh, the country. Some of them, according to military officials here in the U.S., simply taking off their uniforms and yeah. mixing in with the crowd as the Taliban took control. Now, Jay, we're expected to hear more from President Biden today. We understand he's been criticised for his handling of the withdrawal, but any idea of his next move and what he might say? Look, I think right now he's going to continue to say that everyone is focused on getting people out of Kabul. And, and that's happening around the clock at this point. We know the U.S. military has things locked down on the military side of that airport. And we've been told overnight here that uh, more than 3,200 Americans have already been moved out of the region. Add to that 2,000 Afghanis with special visas, those that helped U.S. forces on the ground, uh, they're being relocated to the U.S. In a few weeks, we could see as many as 22,000 uh, making that move. There are 15,000 Americans still on the ground. And so the president, the administration says that they'll continue to focus on that, getting people out yeah. and negotiating with Taliban leaders on making sure that that happens. Right now, things are flowing well. In fact, officials say they expect in the not too distant future to be able to move as many as 9,000 people every 24 hours. But the talks, the negotiations are tenuous and they don't know just how long they'll be able to keep up those flights. All right, good to talk to you. Jay Gray in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Meanwhile, 199 Australians repatriated on a flight from Bali have landed in Darwin tonight. The flight was provided by the federal government to help citizens stuck in Indonesia as that nation struggles with a huge surge in COVID-19 cases. The arrivals will now spend two weeks in isolation at Howard Springs. And New Zealand's latest COVID outbreak has grown to 10 people. The country ended a three-day lockdown yesterday after a community case was detected in Auckland. Some of the infections have been linked to the Delta variant outbreak in New South Wales. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back. The nation's carrier Qantas has today adopted a no-jab, no-job policy announcing mandatory vaccinations for all staff. CEO Alan Joyce spoke about the move earlier. Here he is. Now, it is clear that vaccinations are the only way to end the cycle of lockdowns and border closures. And for a lot of Qantas and Jetstar employees, that means getting back to work again. But I also think today's announcement is the kind of safety leadership people expect from us. All right, our network finance editor, Gemma Acton, joins me now with more. Jim, good evening to you. Um, Qantas has made an interesting move here, leading the way with some companies. Is it breaching any anti-discrimination laws with this mandatory move? Well, Michael, this is too new to be tested, so we don't know. It's thought that if they offer sufficient uh, get-out clauses, so, for instance, if you have a medical exemption, then they should be OK. Uh, it gets more complicated when you get onto grounds of people wanting to refuse it for cultural or religious reasons. There's also a risk they could uh, run into hurdles with... Uh, unfair dismissal rules. So the Fair Work Commission can actually force a company to take back an employee if they determine he or she was unfairly dismissed. So that's something else they could come up against. Uh, Qantas is far from the only company considering this though. We know that the Fruit Packer SPC made the same move about a fortnight ago. Telstra said earlier this week that they were considering their legal options as well. And surely Qantas making this move will be giving other companies confidence to really consider that option more seriously. I mean, if there's one business that hooks on this economy getting going again and people moving, it's, a, it's the airlines. That's right. They need it. But is it a, is it a risk for Qantas or a, a bit of a no-brainer? Well, as you mentioned, this Qantas and its employees have been long, long suffering pretty much more than anyone during this pandemic. So anything that can move us to a post-lockdown um, post world, really, is going to make a lot of sense for them to do. Qantas started with the carrot approach about a month ago, offering prize giveaways for people who are vaccinated, customers who are vaccinated, including really generous ones, like a year of free travel for a family of four. Uh, but they very swiftly, a few weeks later, moved to this stick approach. Now, the unions say that they weren't consulted and are not supportive, but Qantas says that surveying its own staff, 89% said they were either vaccinated or willing to be vaccinated, and only 4% couldn't right. or wouldn't. Yeah. They also said that a survey of customers showed that more than nine in ten expect their airline staff to be vaccinated. Now, the question from that is, but does that mean they should mandate everyone, including head office staff, who don't come into contact with customers? So that could be a more tenuous legal ground. But with all of those surveys of customers and staff, Alan Joyce is banking on the fact that there's probably not a lot of resistance in there. So Doesn't look like it. I don't know if you read the email, but I know in this company we got an email this afternoon about our thoughts on mandatory vaccinations. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. I too. think we'll see more of that. Yeah. All right, Gemma, thank you. Thanks, Michael. Australia's largest ever Paralympics team is preparing for the Tokyo 2020 Games. For half of the 179 athletes, this will be their Paralympic debut. Australia will contest 18 of the 22 sports on offer in Tokyo and five team members have switched sports for the event. I'm happy to say that we're joined tonight by two champions, wheelchair racing Paralympian Christy Dawes from Newcastle and Paralympic swimmer Ellie Cole in Cairns tonight. Lovely to speak to you both and thanks for coming on the latest. Ellie, I'm going to start with you because you're literally just a few minutes away from getting on the plane up there with some of the team to head to Tokyo. How do you feel tonight? I'm very excited, uh, Michael. We've been in Cairns now for two and a half weeks with the Australian swimming team. So 
Uh, a huge part of our team actually will be landing in Cairns over the next few hours and we'll be jumping on the charter flight with them and heading straight to Tokyo, something that we've been looking forward to for five years now. So I'm very excited to get on the plane. I've never been so excited to travel in my life. No, I bet. I bet you are. Christy, it has been a long time coming, uh, these, these games, and it's going to be your seventh Paralympic Games, which is extraordinary. Congratulations on that. Um, can you believe this moment's coming, or can you believe that you're about to get to Tokyo finally? Uh, Marsh, I won't believe it until I'm actually landed and checked into the village <laughs> accreditation around my neck. It's been coming for that long and it's been on and off and on and off. But the extra year's probably been good for me. I had a my second child in 2018, so yeah. it just gave me an extra year to get super fit and come back really strongly and for everything to bounce back again. Yeah. I've been going and not going, so I won't believe it until I'm in the village. Yeah, that's probably wise at this stage. Christy, though, before I move on back to Ellie, tell me one thing, though. I do know that you've been trying to adjust because you've got to deal with the heat in the marathon in Tokyo, which is extraordinary, but because of all the lockdowns and yes. gym closures and trying to acclimatise, that's been difficult. How, you've had a particular way of dealing with the heat. Tell me that story. Well, up until a couple of weeks ago, I was going to my local gym and had just a beautiful sauna and I was spending a lot of time in there but since all the gyms have closed and Newcastle's gone into lockdown again I've just been going to Woolies and doing my groceries and sitting in the car for about half an hour in the car park with the heater on full ball and a cup of coffee and a puffer jacket on and a beanie just trying to try and acclimatise so you just you, you just work with what you've got and you do what you've got. It's, it's a makeshift sauna. I love that story. Ellie, what about you? Any it absolutely is. Any particular challenges in having to adapt to get ready for Tokyo? Well, I, I don't know. After listening to Christy's stories, I feel like a bit of a softy. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you're not. We have a very, uh, <laughs> no, we have a very temperature-controlled climate. In fact, I don't think most swimmers would even get in the water unless it's a certain degree. Right. Um, so in terms of acclimatising to uh, the pool, I, I guess we haven't really had to do any training in that area. Um, but I do know that there was one 30 degree day in Cairns last week and we had to walk to the pool and I was sweating buckets by the end. Yeah. But you know, Chrissy, you were speaking before about how um, you may be going into these games with no uh, race fitness, but like you said, you've been doing everything that you can. The greatest thing about being an Australian Paralympian is that we, we all thrive off such a challenge. And I think that's why our um, Australian Olympic team was so successful in Tokyo is because Australians just love a great challenge. And you know, over the last 12 months, Paralympians and Olympians alike have faced those challenges. So to be able to um, experience all of that and, and just get on the charter flight and, and be able to be with each other and watch each other do what we do best, like I'm, I'm sure everybody's looking forward to it just as much as I am. Oh, absolutely. And Ellie, you know what? Just me watching you now, both of you, you're in the green and gold. How good is that? I know. I know. So Very good. I was actually so speaking good. to my niece on um, FaceTime before and she said, you know, uh, Auntie Ellie, what are you wearing? And I said, I'm wearing my Paralympic shirt for the first time. And she, she started clapping. <laughs> and um, yeah. it's nice that she understands what that means at the age of five. And Christy, for you, I mean, you've proudly worn it a few times now, but it, that feeling must be fantastic when you get into the green and gold. Uh, it, it's not a colour that usually suits me except for this time every four years, <laughs> but um, it never gets old and it is such a privilege to wear it. And I don't take a second of this time while I'm wearing it for granted and I never will. So um, I just can't wait to get over there. Look, we're very much looking forward to both of you competing and all the team, as I said at the beginning there, uh, 179 athletes uh, heading off. Uh, Ellie, you're in the first wave there. Good luck with the flight. Good luck in Tokyo to both of you. And
Thank you so much for joining us. Christy Dawes and Ellie Cole, thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, Gemma Anton's back with a look at the markets. Thanks, Michael. Aussie shares finished lower for a third day running, with the share market dragged down by some of our biggest names, including BHP and CSL, following earnings updates. But it was a brighter session for much of the rest of Asia, with investors looking through ongoing Delta concerns, for now at least. US futures are bouncing around without a clear direction. That's ahead of the latest minutes from the Federal Reserve. This follows falls overnight after disappointing retail data. And oil is making a little headway, but still hasn't managed to crack back through 70 US dollars, while the Aussie dollar is still reeling from last night's sharp sell-off, which left it close to one cent lower. Michael. Thank you for your company this evening. From the team here at 7 News, that is the latest. I'm Michael Usher. Have a good night.